Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 13. book of Zechariah is two books to the left of Matthew's Gospel. He is the longest and the penultimate of the minor prophets. Zechariah chapter 13. And this morning, we'll be concluding a theme that has been peppered throughout the final chapters of Zechariah, that of the, the shepherd motif. This morning's three short verses, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9, conclude a theme that has been running as far back as chapter 9. We're going to look at the shepherd who is struck and his sheep who are scattered. Let's begin by reading our text, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake, O sword against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. In these three short verses, we get a final dealing with this shepherd theme that, as I said, began in chapter 9. If you remember, Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. He's returned to the people, already returned from the Babylonian captivity. A meager Small people, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls. And he reminds them, the name Zechariah means the Lord God remembers. And this is a book of encouraging words. And and this final section of Zechariah, these two burdens of the word of the Lord, from chapter 9 through 14, were dealing largely with eschatology, the last days. Primarily and specifically, the events surrounding the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. These burdens of the word of the Lord. It's not surprising in a section focusing on those events, this shepherding motif begins. Turn back a little bit to chapter 9, where it first enters. And the first burden of the word of the Lord. After the king arrives in verse 9, we get this in verse 16. On that day the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewel of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, new wine the young women. It's the first mention. The king comes in chapter 9, and then we hear of God's heart for his people, like a shepherd for his flock. We move a little further into chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. The household gods utter nonsense. The diviners see lies. They tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep that are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. 
So what we learn, God cares for his sheep. God is angry at evil, incompetent, unfit, careless shepherds. But then this theme gets raised again in chapter 11. Where God sends them a shepherd. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hands. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter by the sheep traders, and I took two staves, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep in one month. I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed, and let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my favor, my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the people. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, knowing the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So in this next section, after God has declared his heart, his passion, his zeal for his flock, and how he's angry at those who would not tend them, he has Zechariah live out a drama where Zechariah puts on the gear, the accoutrements of a shepherd, and he tends the flock, and he feeds the sheep, and he defends them against their enemies. The flock detests this shepherd. And so we get this stunning news of judgment that The shepherd will leave the flock to be slaughtered, the flock doomed for slaughter. What is to die? Let it die. And and I'm guessing Zechariah's audience is wrestling wrestling with what to make of this. How can God at one time, chapter two earlier, speak of his zeal, his love, his flock is like, according to 9.16, like the jewel of his crown. He's angry with evil, uncaring shepherds, and he's going to... Here, when his flock rejects his shepherd, he will deliver them up to be devoured. Not only that, but in 11.15, God will raise up a fitting shepherd for such a people. The Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd! who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. So in the second scene of the drama of the shepherd, Zechariah puts on the gear of a shepherd, this time representing a very different shepherd, a foolish or wicked shepherd, one who the Lord would raise up. The Lord would raise up the shepherd who would oppress the flock. And the Lord would also strike him down in due time. And then... This shepherd theme gets picked up again in chapter 13 in our text. This is the final dealing with that. You can understand the place here, because chapter 14 
is, is the final look at the, the consummation of Israel's history. It's a wonderful chapter. There's a battle. The Lord God returns to earth. A kingdom is set up. And yet, before we get there, in what appears almost a striking turn, and, and, and in the narrative and in the Hebrew text, this is a striking change. We go from speaking in chapter 13 of the land's purification after the people have come to repentance and faith. In chapter 12, 10, they, they look on the one whom they have pierced. They mourn, they grieve, they, they turn to him. In 13.1, a fountain is opened to cleanse Israel and they purify themselves. And last week we saw how this future believing, repentant Israel will in the future cleanse themselves from idolatry. They will not only cleanse themselves from their sin, but they'll zealously seek out and purify themselves. And then in this context, change of voice, awake, O sword! Against my shepherd. And again, I think it's, we're meant to get the juxtaposition. This is meant to be jarring. Direct address to a sword. And so we look at, in this three verses, the, the final word on this shepherding motif, the stricken shepherd and his scattered sheep. We're going to look at it in two points. First, we're going to look at the stricken shepherd. We're going to try to figure out who is he, what happens to him. And then we're going to look at his flock and who are they and what happens to them. So who is he and, and, and what happens to him? That's what we're going to deal with in our first four points here, the stricken shepherd. Point one, who, who is this shepherd? Now, the commentators have varied. Um, some have suggested that this stricken shepherd in 13.7 is none other than the wicked shepherd of 11.17. The reason for that is because the shepherd, the worthless shepherd whom God raises up, the curse against him, you read, 11.17, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. And here, 13.7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So there's a wicked shepherd, a foolish shepherd at the end of 11, whom the Lord predicts, curses, a sword will strike him. And here in 13.7, a sword is commanded to strike this shepherd. I don't, I don't think that will do. I don't think that interpretation will work. There's a number of reasons for that, but I want you to notice two things specifically. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The blank here, point A. Whoever this person is, he is the Lord's shepherd. The Lord's shepherd. Then he says it again, unless there's any misunderstanding, against the man who stands next to me. This shepherd who is struck, and this is, again, meant to raise questions in our mind. We were expecting the wicked shepherd to be struck. We were expecting a curse to fall upon the, the corrupt shepherd. We could understand that. A shepherd who devours the flock, a shepherd who, who feeds upon the sheep, it would seem fitting, it would seem just, it would seem right for such a shepherd to be struck down. And here... God commands the sword not against that evil shepherd, but against his shepherd. Against his shepherd. It's meant to, to make, to make the, the mind go, what on earth is this? Now, we, this side of the cross, can put all this together, and by the end of this morning's study, we, we will put it all together. But I want you to get the surprise, the potential confusion here. This is the Lord's shepherd. And this theme of the Lord's shepherd is, is a deep biblical one. We've, we've looked at it before, but turn over to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. One of my favorite passages in the Bible where we see God's shepherding heart. 
You know, the 20, 23rd Psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and, and the picture of a shepherd is a very valid, helpful, and true way of picturing the Lord God Almighty. Shepherds care for sheep. Shepherds feed sheep. Shepherds rescue sheep and tend to them. And our God cares for us, and He feeds us, and He tends to our needs. And in Ezekiel 34, the first ten verses speak out in God's anger at wicked shepherds. We see that in verse 3. You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. Lost you have not sought. You want to know what's what's shepherding about, what pastoral ministry is about? It's about feeding sheep. It's about strengthening the weak. It's about healing the sick. It's about injuring, binding up the injured. It's not about injuring. It's about binding up the injured and bringing back the lost and the strayed. And then jump down to verse 11. What will God do about this? For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places that they've been scattered on a day of clouds and of thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord, and I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I'll feed them in justice. So, so when, when Zechariah speaks of the Lord's shepherd, and stay here in Ezekiel, don't, don't move, we've got one more verse to look at here. But when Zechariah speaks of the Lord shepherd, this is a theme that, that has antecedent scripture. Zechariah and his audience would be aware of Ezekiel, God's promise that in spite of all these failed human shepherds, he himself, notice that emphasis, I, I, myself, the Lord God himself would one day shepherd his people. Go a little further in Ezekiel 34 though. Verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And even in Ezekiel 34, with God's emphatic, I, I myself will shepherd them. I, I myself will feed them. But David will do it, my servant. To which we ask the question, okay, is it the Lord God himself who's going to be doing this, or is it his servant David? And as we keep reading through our Bibles, we figure out that the answer is yes. So, so back, back over now to Zechariah. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is God's shepherd. God had promised to send a shepherd. Zechariah had already imaged, carried out the drama of this shepherd who would be rejected. The good shepherd who would come in chapter 11, who would feed the sheep, who would fight off their enemies and be rejected. This is also the one who in in chapter 12, verse 10, the people look upon. And you will notice that same confusion over identity. 
Look at 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. So is Israel looking on the Lord or are they looking on him whom they've pierced? And the answer we learn is yes. They're looking on the Lord and they are looking on the one whom they've pierced. So this is the Lord's shepherd. And, and Jesus takes up this title. The New Testament takes up this title for Jesus repeatedly. Most notable, turn, turn to John chapter 10. A familiar passage. But when Jesus speaks, especially to Jews, there's an assumption of their, their understanding of the Old Testament. And, and I know that I used to love reading John 10, and I'm the good shepherd. And then when I started reading what Ezekiel 34 and all these other passages, Jesus' statements just got richer and deeper and fuller. So in the context of a Jewish people, people who knew their Old Testaments, Jesus says this in John 10, 11 to 16. In case there's any question, who is this shepherd? Is there any question at all? I think this resolves it. John 10, verses 11 to 16. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them and he flees. He is a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who is, who is this person spoken of in Zechariah? This rich biblical theme of, of a shepherd, the Lord's shepherd, David's greater son who would come and tend God's flock, who would also somehow be the Lord God himself. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not entirely clear for Zechariah's audience, but there's still some overlap as we see. This is the Lord's shepherd, and they know about, they know about Ezekiel. And then this comes to its head here in John 10. Clearly, elsewhere in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 20 is called the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5, 4 is the chief shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's the true shepherd. He is, point A, the Lord's shepherd. Okay, what else do we learn about him? Back in, back in Zechariah 13, he's the Lord's shepherd. But we get the second statement, against the man who stands next to me. Now that phrase for man who stands next to me is an uncommon term used only in Leviticus to refer to a close associate or fellow family member. The blank here is he is the Lord's kinsman or he's the Lord's fellow. And the picture of standing next to the Lord again makes it clear this isn't some wicked person. This is the Lord's right-hand man, as it were, his, his equal, one who can stand in his presence. And again, throughout Zechariah, we've seen that sort of that confusion or that sort of hinting at the deity of this coming Messiah. We saw that in 12.10. They look on me, on him whom they have pierced. We saw that in, in Ezekiel 34. I, I myself will shepherd them. I, I myself will feed them, and David will shepherd them. And so even here, maybe not fully and clearly realized, but with New Testament eyes, we see that the deity of this shepherd. He is the Lord's shepherd, point B. He is the Lord's kinsman or fellow. 
And again, this, this gets fully established in the New Testament. Who, who doesn't know John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Or Jesus' claim a little later in John 10. Go back to John 10. In the same context of shepherding, in the same context of, of Jesus claiming to be a shepherd, in John 10, we read the following words. Chapter 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. A clear claim on the Lord Jesus' part to deity. This is, of course, what ultimately was the reason the Pharisees gave for why they must put him to death, for blasphemy, for claiming equality with God, making statements like, before Abraham was, I am. It's popular nowadays to try to say Jesus never claimed to be God. You can't be reading the New Testament Gospels and, and come to any other conclusion than that he emphatically, boldly, clearly, repeatedly claimed equality with God, such as this passage, I and the Father are one. And look how the Jews respond to verse 31. They get it. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they've understood, they understood what he said. People 2,000 years later get confused. His initial audience, total clarity. They didn't like it. Total clarity. He's claiming equality with God. And all that, back in Zechariah 13, is there in seed form. And what we're trying to do is put all this together. Trying to understand this, this shepherding motif. Because what we're getting is different camera angles in these vignettes of the same thing. And, and so some of the accounts can be confusing. We've got to try to put it together. In 11, we see that God is going to send a shepherd who Zechariah lives out, images, who will tend to the flock, who will care for the flock, who will feed the flock, defend the flock, and will be rejected by the flock. They will despise him. And so, as a result of this, according to 11, he then disowns the flock and he leaves them to their fate. Not an ultimate disowning. As we see and then in chapter 12, God at the right hour, at the last moment, the end of history, 12.10, will pour out his spirit upon them. So the stricken shepherd, who is he? He's the Lord's shepherd. He's the Lord's kinsman and fellow. This is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the divine shepherd. What happens to him? What happens to him is he gets struck down by a sword. And in the Bible, this is, this is clear language for death. It doesn't have to be a literal sword. If you remember when David had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed by having the army retreat and leave him exposed, he was shot with arrows. Yet when Nathan comes to him, he says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite, you struck him down with the sword of the Ammonites. It doesn't have to be a literal sword. It's a picture of death. Execution. Jesus was pierced with a sword, but ultimately nailed to a cross. It's immaterial. The point is, a king speaking to a sword is, is demanding execution. This is the Lord's judgment, point C. The Lord's judgment. And it is most unexpected. As I've said, we've seen God's anger at the bad shepherds. Again and again in this book, God is angry at false shepherds. And he sends a good shepherd who is rejected by the people. And here... Wonder of wonders, 
The Lord God strikes down His own shepherd. He commands judgment to fall upon His own shepherd, His own equal, the one who stands by His side, the good shepherd. This is the Lord's judgment. And, and it is unexpected. You might think that God's heavenly house is divided when, when a ruler strikes down his own equal, his own right-hand man, as it were. And again, Zechariah doesn't make all of this fully clear. With New Testament eyes, we know in John 10, Jesus says he lays down his life for the sheep. It is not because the good shepherd has committed some offense. We learn later in the Bible why. Why would the Lord God strike down the shepherd? Because it was part of the divine plan for salvation. Because the, the good shepherd willingly lays down his life for the sheep. But make no mistake, the Romans may have nailed Jesus to a cross. The Jews may have cried out for his blood. But ultimately, it's the Lord God who strikes him down. In, in Isaiah 53, we read, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we are healed. Then a little later in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. We wrestle sometimes with human agency and divine sovereignty. Because after all, this is the same one who in 12.10, look at 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. 12.10, who struck, who pierced the Messiah? Israel. 13.7, who struck him? The Lord God. Which one is it? The answer again? Yes. This is a tension of divine sovereignty. And we get these different angles. We can look at the, the crucifixion, the death of the Good Shepherd, as the act of sinful men, like we do in 12.10. And we can also look at the death of the Good Shepherd as a sovereign act of God. The New Testament wrestles with this tension as well. In the book of Acts, the apostolic preaching of the cross as, as the apostles proclaim to the Jews how to understand what has happened. They make statements like this, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. But it all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so what they're saying at the same time is, you killed him according to God's plan. <laughs> but you killed him. Or a little later in Acts 4.27, for truly in this city, the early church gathering and praying, um, truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the New Testament, the Bible, is able to lay the guilt squarely at the feet of sinful men. So Zechariah 12, 10, Israelites can look upon the one whom they've pierced and they can repent and they can mourn for their sin, their real guilt. And yet, 13, 7, also the Lord God can say, I strike my shepherd. I call for the blow. It's true. It's both true. This is the Lord's judgment. And so what we're seeing here 
is this one whom they pierced in 1210 is also the one the Lord calls the sword to awake against and strike. Which brings us then to point D. And this is sort of trying to tie it all together. This is all then revealing God's, this is the Lord's plan. And we sort of put these pieces together, understanding and trying to make sense of what will Israel's future hold. Zechariah is writing about the 6th century, early 506, 516 B.C., hundreds of years before Jesus' arrival, and he's giving encouraging words, and yet at times sometimes discouraging words to Israel, speaking of what they should expect, what the future will hold. And we saw in 9 how he would deliver them from Alexander the Great, he would strengthen them in the revolt under Antiochus Epiphanes, led by the Maccabees. We saw their king would come on a donkey, we also saw how they would reject their Messiah and how God would deliver them over to be devoured. And so when we put all this together, God's plan, we see a God who cares deeply for his flock, a God who will send a shepherd for this flock. This shepherd will be rejected and God will discipline the people. God will deliver them over to be devoured. And yet... God will ultimately, in 12.10, pour out His Spirit upon them. God will ultimately bring them back to Himself. God will ultimately convert them. The ones who had rejected their Messiah will one day receive with faith their Messiah. All part of God's unfolding plan. All, all leading up to chapter 14, the Lord God Himself will come and fight for His people. So Zechariah is telling Israel, there are good days, ultimately, overarching, God loves you. God is, is going to be faithful to you. God is going to see you through. God is not going to let you go. God cares for you. He cares deeply about the evil shepherds, the, the evil leaders who are abusing you. He will send you a good shepherd, but he will judge you because you will reject him. He will discipline you. Even though it is he himself, ultimately, who strikes him down. This is what we put together from Zechariah's prophecies and plans. So there's ultimate deliverance. We saw at the beginning of chapter 12, Israel will triumph over her enemies. The nations of the world will gather around Israel and she will defeat them. But not before much, much suffering has taken place to the sons of Jacob. Not before much, much suffering. This is all God's plan being laid out here in this prophetic book. Let's turn our attention briefly to the scattered Sheep, the scattered sheep. What happens to them? You see at the end of verse 7, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Now we know Jesus quotes this text in Matthew 26, 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I think its ultimate fulfillment of this scattering comes a little bit later in AD 70, the people of Israel are scattered under the Roman persecution under Titus. The temple is destroyed. But what happens is somehow this destruction, this striking down of their shepherd, un it un unnerves the sheep, even, even the faithful ones. Jesus is applying this to his own disciples. A crucified Messiah is scandalous. When the shepherd is struck, the people are scattered. It says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. And even the early church was scattered. James begins his epistle. James, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
Not only will they be scattered, though, this is divine discipline, point A. Point B, what the scattering is followed by is severe winnowing. Severe winnowing. The whole land, verse 8, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. Now, the fractions aren't as exact as it might appear in the ESV. Literally, it's two portions and one portion. But I, I think two-thirds and one-third is probably about right of what we're supposed to understand it to be. Understand this. The judgment that, will, that, that fell upon Israel for, for their in the wake of the death of their Messiah, we're going to see two things. One group is going to get death and judgment, and one group is going to receive salvation through suffering. The whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. Severe Severe winnowing. I think this is what's described if you turn back to chapter 11 in verse 6 and verse 9. Same context. The rejection of their Messiah. Verse 6, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they will crush the land, and I'll deliver none from their hands. And a little later in in verse um, 9, Read, and I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And when we study that, we spoke about the siege of Jerusalem by Titus and, and the sufferings and the persecutions and the death, crucifixion of thousands upon thousands of Jews. I think that's what's being spoken of here. Two-thirds being destroyed. And since the death of their Messiah, Israel's history has been one of persecution, um, attack, slaughter. But the promise is um, that one portion will remain alive. And you think, okay, what if this one portion, then surely something good happens to this one portion. Well, yes, something good does happen to that one portion. And the good that happens to that one portion comes through much suffering. Point C, we see a refined remnant, a refined remnant. In result, in the fallout of the shepherd being struck by the Lord, the sheep scatter, two-thirds are cut off, destroyed, one-third, one portion remaining is cast into the fire. I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. That doesn't sound like very pleasant. Um, my, my, my daughter just burnt the tip of her thumb on a sparkler. And it was in water for a long time. And you picture the imagery of, of refining. You, you, know how, you know how metals are purified, right? You have to heat them to such a point where they become a liquid and they glow. And only at that point will the impurities be burned off. We can, we can sing songs like Refiner's Fire. You know, just turn on your stove and start moving your hand towards that and think about refiner's fire. It hurts. It hurts. This is a refined remnant, but it's a, it's a common biblical imagery. This is how God will get them to the end of verse 9. The path for this remnant is through refining. I will put the third into the fire, refine them as one refined silver, test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. You see, this refining process is precisely how God brings about co- context in which God brings them to faith. 
I think what he's describing is really where chapter 14 begins, where the nations are gathering around Jerusalem, where where the city is broken into. Look at verse 2 of chapter 14. I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken. The houses plundered. The women raped. Half the city shall go into exile. The rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations. And as we're trying to piece all of this together, I think it's then, in in that dire moment, of refining and suffering that in chapter 12, 10 will occur when God pours out His Spirit upon them. When they look to Him, when they cry out to Him, when they believe, when they see and receive their Messiah, it's through suffering. And we learn in the New Testament that this is not just true of how people, God creates faith, it's how God refines and further purifies faith. Listen to what 1 Peter 6, 9 says. I just want to pause because we often will view trials as a bad thing. Um, and there's a sense in which that's true, that's true. But understand, the Christian life is growing primarily through suffering and trials. And Peter will tell us not to be surprised by that. We, we may be dismayed by recent events politically. And there's a legitimate sense, and I think, that we can be dismayed. But there's another sense in which we should not be surprised nor ultimately be downcast. First Peter 1, 6-9, in this You greatly rejoice, though, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That God... Get this, God is more interested in quality than quantity. Two-thirds of the people die. The one remaining third gets purified. Because God is more interested in quality than quantity. He wants a holy people. He wants a pure bride. He wants genuine faith, purified and refined. So God's after, and God is willing to bring suffering into our lives. I mean, think about how you've grown in your Christian life. Think of the times you've grown the most. It probably weren't times of ease. You read Christian biographies, you listen to the testimony of others. I'll tell you myself, it's, it's through times of suffering, times of loss, times of pain. That's when the Lord God teaches me to rely upon Him. That's when the Lord God you know, forces me. When you've got nothing else... Okay, I've tried everything else. Okay, I guess I'll just have to cast myself on the Lord and see if that works. And God proves himself faithful. God refines us. Refined remnant. Point D, finally, bringing us to a restored remnant. This isn't because God is a sadist. It's because God loves them. God does what he needs to do. God does according to his plan to cause this remnant to turn to him and call upon him. Then they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people. They will say the Lord is my God. Now there is the happy outcome. A believing remnant, a people turn to and trusting in God only by coming through the fire, only by coming through the refining. They, they turn to God and they believe and they, they call out to him. This is an echo of what was said a little earlier in Zechariah. Go to 8.8. 8. Promise, I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I'll be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. They'll be my people and I will be their God. 
See, ultimately, it's only when a person calls out to God, looking upon Jesus, that that's how they're saved. Salvation is the same in the Old Testament as it is now. It's looking to God in faith, receiving, believing in, in the one whom he has sent. Less clear for them, more clear for us. And even though this is a description of Israel's future, this offer of salvation, this method of salvation remains open to all of us. If any of us will turn and look upon the one whom we pierced, our sins pierced, we'll grieve for him. We will call upon the name of the Lord. He will answer us so that he will say, they're my people, you're my son, you're my daughter. And we will say, the Lord is my God. And that's the, that's the gospel in simplicity this shepherd who is struck for our sins. Now, that's not here in Zechariah, clearly, in this passage. But building upon the biblical narrative, we know the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is struck for the flock. He he bears our iniquity. He bears our sin. And we we must turn to him in faith, mourning our sin, calling out to him for mercy. And God will say this great news, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, just turn finally back to Ezekiel. I'm going to go two chapters further than what we looked at before. Ezekiel 37. But we just read here, and what we will read in the next two weeks in Zechariah 14 is really the fulfillment of this prophecy in, in Ezekiel. But I think the, the words in Zechariah echo the words in Ezekiel 37. I believe the the Jews reading this passage in, or hearing Zechariah speak this passage to draw to mind the, the promise in Ezekiel 37. This is the, the, the passage of the valley of dry bones, dead bones the Lord speaks life over, which I believe is another way of describing Ezekiel 12.10. When God pours his spirit out over Israel where dead people come alive spiritually. Just listen to this. We'll pick it up in verse 21. Ezekiel 37.21. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, I will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation of the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall reign over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land which I gave my servant Jacob, where their fathers lived, they and their children. And their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And that promise spoken by Ezekiel, we're now reading of its fulfillment, its promised fulfillment. And in the coming two weeks, in Zechariah 14, we'll see it in explicit clarity. But here, let us now turn our minds to remember the shepherd who is struck. I'm going to call the ushers up for this. This morning we'll celebrate the Lord's table. 
Now, Zechariah announces his death, and in, and in chapter 13, we, we don't get much of a sense of why. In chapter 13, we don't receive much of a sense of why it happened. But we know better now with New Testament eyes of faith. We know he was pierced for our transgressions, delivered over for our sins. And it's in that light that we take this meal. The Lord God did not deliver many observances over to us. Really, there's only two, baptism and the Lord's table. And what this meal in miniature symbolizes is many things. It symbolizes, pictures His death and His resurrection. Jesus says it proclaims it till He comes. It pictures that we are those who are feeding on the Lord Jesus by faith. We are those who have come to Him in faith. We are those who continue to come to Him in faith. If you have come to Christ in faith, if you are a believer, if you have turned from your sins and trusted the Savior, this meal is for you. However, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, a warning to be considered. Let a person examine himself then and eat the bread and drink the cup so. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We're going to take a moment and just pause and I just encourage you, examine your heart, make sure you're right with the Lord. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never seen him as the one pierced for your sins, now would be a great time to do that. But let's make sure we come to this table worthy. We don't defile it. And we don't drink judgment upon ourselves. Let's just pray quietly.